like for you to turn to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. And uh, I, I do have to say, I, I really it was all, it was just my heart's desire to get all the way through the rest of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 tonight because I said, well, we're in heaven, you know, and they pretty much all these two chapters, you know, one leads into the other, one is the, you know, the basis of the other and, and, and all. But the more I continue to look at chapter 5, the more I realize there's too much in there to pass through too fast. So I know that you always pray for the timeline to be right. So we're going to trust that God is allowing us to do this. Because there's still some things in chapter 4 that we need to look at. So we're going to begin in verse 8 and begin reading there. Now I do encourage you to read it in your scriptures, but... um, Read in your Bibles, but uh, I'll give you some of the references up here, and, and other times it'll be only the reference. I think tonight it's only one time. I, I really fit them all in there for you. But here we go. Revelation 4, verse 8. It says, The four living creatures, the cherubim, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. Now remember, we're in heaven. I mean, John is... is, is has now been transported into heaven to see what is going on and representing, you know, the very fact that the church would be carried into heaven before the great tribulation period. We talked about it before. We're going to talk a little bit more about it tonight. And so he sees, first he sees the 24 elders uh, and their thrones. Now he sees the living creatures. And so... He sees the representation of all of the redeemed from the Old and the New Testament, from uh, before the crucifixion or before the life of Jesus, at least on this earth. And then, of course, those who came to know Christ after the death, burial, and resurrection, so on and so forth. So, you have all the redeemed represented in heaven, and John is there to see this. So now what he's seeing is the issues of worship here. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, having understanding. And of course, uh, we talked about the faces of the, of the man and the uh, eagle and, and the cattle and, uh, and all. So, and, then, and it says, and they do not rest day and night. Now, I've underlined that. It's not underlined up here, but, but I've underlined that for you to underline it. They do not rest day and night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. One of the greatest needs the church of Jesus Christ has, both individually and corporately, is that of true spiritual worship. We need to understand what true spiritual worship is, and we need to act in true spiritual worship toward the Lord. Now please understand that we can emphasize over and over the need for witnessing for Christ. That's an important thing for us to do, to let others know about Jesus Christ. Uh, it, is, it is foremost in, 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 the, in the lives of the believer in Jesus Christ to to give testimony of what Christ has done. To give witness of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Very important. We can, but we can emphasize it over and over and over. And we can also emphasize working for the Lord. Be busy doing things for the Lord. That's important to do as well. But there is not enough emphasis on worshiping Him. There's not enough emphasis on worshiping the Lord. We are in these two chapters, 4 and 5, encouraged, if not exhorted, to ascribe worth to the Lord. 
Now, if you look back at verse 11, it says, you are worthy. Worthy, the word worthy is, there, is, 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 is a root to the word worship. Worthship. We are giving worth unto the Lord when we worship Him. Please don't get the idea that worship is only about singing or music in the church. Certainly a big part about, uh, of worship, but it isn't what worship is all about. It is ascribing worth to God. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. When you go to chapter 5, verse 12, you see that it says that they are saying with a loud voice there in heaven, worthy is the Lamb. So now notice the language of worship in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So, to ascribe or attribute worth unto the Lord, to ascribe or attribute worth unto the Lord means to use all that we are and all that we have to praise God for all that He is and does. Can, can we grasp that tonight? I, th- I think we all can. It's not a hard thing to, it's not a hard concept to, uh, concept to grasp. To ascribe worth or to attribute worth unto the Lord is to use all that we are and have to praise God for all that He is and all that He does. And, and the emphasis that I know, you'll notice I, I underline the word all. Because we are not to be half-hearted worshipers. We're to worship God with everything that is within us. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. But let every one who has breath give all to the glory of God. Not just some, but all. Not just more than somebody else, but all. Not just 75%, because everybody else is maybe worshiping at 25%, uh, you know. Or like Irish soap commercials used to have, 99, 44, 100%. No, no, 100%. We are to ascribe all. We are to use all that we are, all that we have to praise God for all that He is and all that He does. Now, for all intents and purposes, we must know <clears throat> that heaven is a place of worship. I've kind of emphasized that, but I'm going to say it a lot tonight. Heaven is a place of worship, and God's people shall worship Him for all eternity. That's why I said earlier, before we started worshiping, that, you know, we're just practicing here. And this is a good time to practice our worship before God. Because if we're going to go to heaven, we're going to worship Him all the time. And in eternity is, oh, how long? Forever. <laughs> and we'll be before His throne. As it said, day and night, but you know, there, there's, that's an interesting statement because there's not going to be any night in heaven. But we're going to be worshiping the Lord with everything that we do in heaven, whatever that may be. You'll notice in verses 8 and 10 of our text of chapter 4, the phrases that describe in part the worship of heaven. It says, they do not rest day and night. They fall down before Him and worship Him. They do not rest day and night. They fall down before Him and they worship Him. They fall down before the Lord. Well, that's something we don't oftentimes see. Maybe sometimes one or two people might do that in a a service. But we usually stand and we praise the Lord in that manner. And that's okay. But I sometimes wonder why it is that when alone before the Lord and we sense the weight of His presence, that the only place we can be is down on our faces because of His, the weight of His glory among us. We see it all through the Scriptures. But none of this can be done. None of this can be done without, a, without having a, a true and a genuine relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It would just be noise. It would be like that clanging symbol that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. 
if we don't have love. And we're just making noise. Even John and Jesus, John the Apostle and Jesus, would encourage us that in seeing Him, we see the Father. And, I, and I'm, I'm mentioning this for a reason, as, as we'll get into it in just a moment. But, but in John 1.18, John writes, No one has seen God at any time. The, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Jesus has declared the Father. Jesus Himself. In John 14, verse 9, after that great statement when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. That Philip said, show us the Father. That's when Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen him. And of course, later on, John, in his first letter to the church, in the first epistle, 1 John 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. It was the life, the eternal life that was with the Father. This is Jesus. And was manifested to us, made known to us, that which, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, notice this, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Why is all of this important? When we're talking about worship before the throne of God in heaven. Why is this important? Simply because there is a relationship that makes life complete. There is a relationship that makes life complete. Without that relationship... There is a void and a vacuum in life. And all of us in this room either have been there or maybe somebody's still there even now. I hope not. You know, a lot of times on Wednesday, the ones who come are the ones who really want to be here. <laughs> if you really want to be here, then I, I certainly hope that, that you know, this is something that you know. Before you came to Jesus Christ, there was that void. There was that vacuum. There was an emptiness and an incompleteness in your relationship with God. Well, the fact is you didn't have one. You may have had a religious experience or you may have been doing religious things, but you didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And in effect, you had no relationship with the God who created you. Many people, even well-known people, can attest to that void, that emptiness. For example, those of you, most of you have heard of H.G. Wells, the famous author, historian, and journalist. He said at the age of 61, and he had a few more years after this, but even at the age of 61, he said, I have no peace. He wasn't a believer. He said, I have no peace. All life is at the end of the tether. You all played tetherball, right? So you, you kind of understand what that is. You know, here you, your life is just, you know, going around in circles. It's haphazard this way and that that way. It, you know, something's hitting it going this way and that way. And at some point, it's just going to, you know, twirl around the stick and just end. In other words, no meaning to life. So I have no peace. He had no peace because he had no relationship with the Prince of Peace, who is Jesus Christ. And then... There was, of course, Lord Byron, the 18th, 19th century poet, who wrote, My days are in yellow leaf, which, you ever seen a yellow leaf? You know, green leaves have some life, especially if they're still tied into the tree. A yellow leaf is one that's off the tree and dying or is dead. He says, My days are in yellow leaf, the flowers and fruits of life are gone, the worm and the canker and the grief are mine alone. That's kind of significant because you know the worm and the canker is mentioned in the Scriptures. So he knew the Scriptures. But he didn't know the one who wrote the Scriptures. At least this is what he's describing in his life. 
The American literary genius Henry David Thoreau was the one who wrote, uh, famously, most men live lives of quiet desperation. That's what we see around the world today. That's what we see with most of the people that we work with or go to school with. They're outside, you know, they're doing things or uh, there are all kinds of activity going on. People are happy, people are doing one thing or another, but inside they're living lives of quiet desperation. They have no peace, they have no joy, they have no hope. They don't know when life will end or if there's anything beyond life. For the most part, most people don't believe that. There is any life. But it was the 20th century American cartoonist, Ralph Barton, who did most of his cartoon drawings and stuff and was famous for it back in the 20s. I wasn't there. But I've seen his work, you know, in books and... And stuff, but nonetheless, this is what he said at the end of his life. He, he actually, he actually killed himself. He, he, he wrote a suicide note before he took his own life, and he said, "I've run from wife to wife, from house to house, and from country to country, in a ridiculous effort to escape from myself. In doing so, I am very much afraid that I have spread a good deal of unhappiness among the people who have loved me." What a Depressing statement at the end of a life. And many people today are no different. They're distraught. They're unsatisfied. They're, they're depressed. They're in counseling, having breakdowns and trying to figure out what they're doing here, what the meaning of life is, or wondering if it even has meaning. It's amazing what you see on the Internet. The way people are trying to find meaning or extend meaning in, in philosophical or artistic or, or even just in gross ways. But in a world that seems to provide no satisfaction to people, I hope to show tonight that having a true, solid, and genuine relationship with the Creator of the heavens and the earth and the Savior of the world and understanding our need and desire to worship Him fully and completely in and through our lives brings tremendous significance, meaning, and purpose to lives as we look for His appearing. You know, I, I emphasize day in, day out, whenever we're together, you know, Jesus is coming. He's coming soon. We're in the first and the last books of the Bible, Genesis and Revelation. We're in the, we're in the, uh, the bookends of the Bible. And yet I as much can say that when we study the book of Genesis on, on the weekend as I can say that tonight as we're looking at the last book, speaking of the end times. Jesus is coming soon. From Genesis chapter 3 that tells us that the Messiah is coming, we ought to be ready. He was, we needed to be ready. People needed to be ready when they were told He was going to come through a certain line. And did they listen? John said he came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, both Jew and Gentile, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, to as many as believe in his name. So the promise of his coming was genuine and real. And before he went to the cross, he said, listen, I'm coming again. And before he goes to the cross, he said, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And that should encourage our hearts that that is the promise for us. In these last days. And you don't have to wait at the bus stop. It doesn't matter where you are, wherever you're going to be, He's going to come and get you. Man, you talk about limousine service. We don't have to wait on a mountain or on a hill or at a bus stop or at a train station. He said, wherever you are, I'm going to come and I'm going to gather you unto myself. Speaking to the church. And we need to be looking for His appearing. 
But that gives us some indication of where our heart is. Because if our heart is in that resting in that fellowship and in that in that relationship with our Father and with 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 our uh, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then that all we can think about, though we have many things to do until then. And He's given us that opportunity and, he, and He's given us everything we need for life and godliness of Jesus Christ. But all that we do, there should always be in our hearts a desire to look up and say, my redemption draws near. Our redemption draws near. It could come tonight. It could come at any moment. But are you ready for that to happen? Our looking for His appearing it should be alive. It should be a, a living thing inside of us. Living and beating like the hearts that are beating right now. But by the way, check your pulses. So I'll make sure you're alive here this evening. Okay. All right. Most of you look good. You look good. Did I say most? Okay. All of you look good. <laughs> and so John the Apostle, in showing us the things that shall be hereafter, remember, John, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 119, that's the key to understanding all the book of Revelation. He's, you know, he was going to be shown the things that have happened, the things that were happening, which is the church at the time. And then, of course, the things that will happen hereafter, which is the future. He's illustrating for us what will happen to God's people when the church age has come to an end. What have we seen? Heaven will open. There will be a voice and the sound of a trumpet. And the saints will be caught up to heaven. And as it says in these, in these, in these scriptures here, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. Behold, Paul said, I tell you a mystery. In other words, I'm going to reveal something to you. It's been a mystery, but as I tell you, it's not going to be a mystery anymore. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Change is coming, folks. Change is coming to us. Change is coming to you. As believers in Jesus Christ. And of course that is what is going to happen when Paul speaks of this to the Thessalonian church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. Those are, my, my, you know, those are Paul's words to the church. Those are my, my words to you. <laughs> to all of us. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Those who have died in Christ. Lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. Folks, let us never sorrow as those who have no hope. Let us show hope to all people. We have the hope of Christ. We have the living hope in us. We have His Spirit with us. We have His Word with us. We have everything we need. And we need to show that there is hope. And look around you today. People are looking at things and more and more. Whether they're admitting it or not, they're saying there is no hope in this world. Even in our own country, we see things getting worse and worse. You know what that's telling us? Jesus is coming. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. Listen, a change has to happen. If we're going to get caught up together, something has to change. That's 1 Corinthians 15. In the moment in the twinkling of an eye, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Folks, to let people know that this is going to happen is to be a comfort. It's going to be a comfort to the believer. It's not a comfort to the unbeliever. They think we're crazy. But we're not. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Give me a second here, please. Okay. And he's coming soon. At this point, God's judgment of the earth can begin. See, that, that's why we, we need to see the, the, the progression of what is taking place in, the, in, in this revelation. 
as we see the representatives of all who are redeemed in heaven worshiping the Lord, all of this is going to happen before the time that judgment begins. But before the Lord pours out His wrath upon the earth, He also allows us a glimpse into glory to hear the creatures worshiping in heaven as they praise the One who created all things. Go back to verse 8 of our text. It says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they, they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So we see the cherubim continually repeating the phrase, Holy, Holy, Holy. As a matter of fact, in, in, in some manuscripts, you know, they, they will put nine holies there. Holy, 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 holy. Each one, each one has a, has, has a, has a triune uh, expression. But that's what they do, continually repeating, holy, holy, holy. The holy nature and the character of the one true and living God is declared and emphasized in this threefold presentation that underscores the infinite holiness of God. God is holy. Listen, we don't, we, we don't need to wait to get to heaven to find that out. We need to know that now. As a matter of fact, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that man discovers how holy God is. And how evil man and his heart is in the presence of a holy God. The fact that they do not rest day or night is no indication that there is unrest. Please, please don't look at it that way. They do not rest day or night as if they're just not resting, they're just getting tired or tired. Or, no, no, no. Understand this. On the contrary, the implication is that there is a sweet contentment in their heavenly employment. There is no need to rest in the pure enjoyment of worshiping the Holy One who has His hand on everything because it says, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The word for Almighty there strengthens the understanding of God's hand being upon everything. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. There's nothing God cannot do when it comes to what's happening in the world today, what's happening with world events today. He's, he's seen the end from the beginning. All of this is being seen from the perspective that God has already seen the end from the beginning. He's almighty. And He's all holy. The same expression of praise is given by the seraphim in the temple vision of Isaiah and there in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, it says, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Listen, there are many things that it says in the Word of God about God in the fact that He is just and He is true. He is merciful. He is gracious. But we never hear it said, God is mercy, mercy, mercy. Or God is love, love, love. Or God is gracious, gracious, gracious. It says, though, as we've seen two times now, God is holy, holy, holy. We cannot miss that as believers. He's holy now where we are in this place. When you go home, when you leave here, sometime tonight, I don't know what time, but when you leave here tonight and you go home, and you pray or you spend some time in, de in devotion or just resting and getting ready for tomorrow. Listen, He's still holy. He doesn't put His holiness away. Like some of us put our teeth away. <laughs> He's always holy. Always. Oh, that the church would understand this. We try to make things so... We want people to go, we want you to feel comfortable. We want you to feel... We want you to feel I, I, I don't care about feelings, folks. I really don't. I care about faith. I care that you trust the Lord. God will take care of your feelings. He loves you. He, he's compassionate, isn't He? When you hurt, He's there. He heals. 
And He delivers. And He strengthens. But you know what? I don't care what people feel. They don't like what I say. Sometimes they go out the door. Man, I'm sorry. But you know what? I serve Him. I care to tell you what the Word of God says. The truth of what it says. And it hurts sometimes. Maybe it offends. Sometimes it does. It offends us as believers. But we realize something. We realize that the Word of God is a mirror to our souls and to our hearts. It makes us realize what we need to do in the midst of a holy God. And yet because He's holy, He is still so much our Father. And Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, our Brother, our friend. To his disciples, he said, I, I, I no longer call you servants, I call you my friends. Because he knows us and loves us anyway. We have yet to see the earth full of his glory, but we're going to see it. It's going to happen. So when these things are proclaimed, we can just proclaim right along with the four living creatures and with the 24 elders. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then, and then the praise in heaven actually <coughs> increases. <coughs> Excuse me. The praise in heaven increases. They don't get tired in heaven. You know, they, they actually say, let's do it a little louder. Okay, hey. And at the sound of the holy, holy, holy coming from the four living creatures, the 24 elders then rise from their thrones and they fall before the triune God to join the acknowledgement of praise. Notice in verses 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Notice that John wants to keep reminding us of the nature of God and of His eternality and all of that. He says, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. There he says it again. And, and cast their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things and by Your will they exist and were created. Now they fall down before Him and worship Him. The 24 elders, in their actions and their words of praise. If you, if you can write this down, write it down. The 24 elders, in their actions and in their words of praise. Notice I mentioned actions and word of praise. Sometimes all we hear are the words. Sometimes we only give the words, but are we giving the actions of our worship? The 24 elders in their actions and their words of praise are not only giving God devotional respect and reverence, homage, honor, and service. They are giving direct acknowledgement to God of His nature, attributes, ways, and claims by the outpouring of their hearts in praise and thanksgiving. What are they doing? They are falling before God and they are casting their crowns before His throne. This is how we are to worship the Lord in the here and now. Of course, you don't have a crown yet. You know. It's yet to come. And don't go to Burger King and bring those little ones. Don't do that. It is the, the spirit, the attitude of the worshipful heart of heaven is how we are to worship God today and now. Acknowledging His nature, acknowledging His character, acknowledging His attributes and His ways. Why? Because they're always perfect. They're always perfect. Are we acknowledging God and His nature, His character, His attributes, His ways? Are we passionately praising Him? Folks, I'm telling you, I, I, I tell you something, I'm not asking you, I'm not telling you to put on a show. 
Anybody can do anything on the outside. But what, but what concerns me is, you know, we, we might see concerts on TV, you know, of rock groups or any kind of group that's out there making music and, and all in the crowds, of, you know, they're, well, the, the, you know, the musicians come out and everybody's, yeah, and everybody's, ah, you know, doing all kinds of things and, and waves and, you know, and doing a big lighter, you know, and, and all kinds of stuff and everybody's getting into it, you know, and doing one thing or another. And then, the, you know, and here we come to church and we have the opportunity to work Worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and sometimes we just like, is God not greater than these musicians? I, I'm a musician. I go to concerts. I enjoy it. I clap. You know, I don't sit there going, oh, no. I appreciate the gifts that God gives. Problem is that most of the time people don't use their gifts for the glory of God. I wish they did. Having studied the lives of many musicians uh, when I was in college and, and, uh, and doing all of my music history and all, I have a degree in music. And, 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 and uh, I would, I, it, it, you know, it, I, I would read about these great composers, you know, that, like Johann Sebastian Bach, who wrote for the glory of God. Then I would read of others that I really love their music and I would say, man, God really blessed them and gave them such a musical genius, but their lives were so lived for themselves. What a waste. I mean, we could appreciate the music. We would wish that that music was given to God. I'm just using that as an example. I mean, we could do the same with, with anything else that goes on in this world. Are we passionately praising Him? And don't use the excuse, well, I don't sing too good. I don't care. I really don't care. Because God doesn't listen to the voice. He listens to the heart. Well, He hears the voice too. But, but He hears the heart more. He does hear it. Oh, how it must grieve the Lord when His children become weak in their worship. Because they're not acknowledging His nature. You know, when man takes center stage in the church, God is robbed of the honor. And He's robbed of the homage. And He's robbed of the service that are due Him. But in heaven, we shall worship Him as we ought. He'll never be robbed in heaven. And He shouldn't be robbed here now. For notice that as part of their worship, the 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne. I mean, they lay aside their given glory because that's what the crowns were. Rewards. They're given glory. They lay aside their given glory to add to His glory, thereby ascribing all glory to Him. They realize that they owe their victory to Him who sits upon the central throne. Thus, he alone is worthy to receive their crowns. Here on earth, we want to get credit for what we do. And while it is true that crowns of reward will be given for faithfulness and service, in heaven we will recognize that we are not worthy of them. We will lay them at His feet. At the feet of Him who saved us by His matchless grace. Isn't that a wonderful place to lay our crowns? <laughs> what a wonderful place to lay our crowns. Now, we praise God for saving us, don't we? Man, we should. We praise God for saving us, but have you ever heard a believer thank and praise the Lord for creating him? Uh, yeah, maybe you have. I, but that would be as if I would say today, today before you right now, Lord, thank you so much for creating me. Now, don't get any ideas as if I'm saying, you know, I'm God's gift to the world. But have you ever thanked God for creating you? Stop and think. Just think about that for a moment. Because in heaven, we will know the joy of having been created. 
There are no songs of evolution sung in heaven. There's not going to be any evolution songs in heaven, okay? I came from a monkey. None of those in heaven. Because we didn't come from a monkey. We were created in the image of God. No songs of evolution in heaven. Only songs of creation. And have you noticed that that's what this, that's what this is all about? Our Savior is the origin and the source of all creation. Our Savior is the source of all creation. John 1 verse 3, the Gospel of John. All things were made through Him, speaking of the Logos, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were, were made through Him. It says here in verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. You think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist, or which means all things are held together. By Him. So you can praise God right now that He's holding every molecule together of that chair you're sitting on. Because if He wasn't, you'd be sitting on the ground. He's holding all of that together. Every atom, every molecule, He's holding together. That's the power of God. And this is the reason the elders worship Him. Which means that we will worship the Lord for the same reason. He caused all things and all creatures to exist. And we should and will acknowledge the Lord as the source and the sustainer of the universe and of all life. We will and we should acknowledge the Lord as the source and sustainer of all life. Now, His enemies have raged against Him. His enemies are raging against Him today. Why is it that atheists who say they don't believe in God raise their fists at God? Well, if you don't believe Him, why are you raising your fist at Him? You know why? Because the Bible is very clear. There are no atheists. Everybody has a a sense that God has put into each and every person born into this world. A sense that there is a God. Paul talks about it. By the way, read Romans chapter 1 tonight. Because that's where he says it. Man makes themselves atheists and yet in their heart they rage against God. Some people are raging against God today. Because they don't like what God says about homosexuality. They're raging against God today. And then they're saying, well, wait, wait, you know, if God is, is all good and stuff, then, you know, He'll let us love who we want. Really? You know what? I, I tell you right now, I, could lo- I can go to any of my brothers in this room and say, I love you. And I have no worries about saying that to any of you men. But when it comes to the kind of relationship that God has designed for men and women, that love is a different kind of love. My love to my brethren here is a brotherly love that's given to me by Jesus Christ. But my love is for my wife. Men, you need to love your wives. Because Christ loved the church. Because that's how God designed it. But men men rage against the truth. And they change the language. And they say, oh no, no. The government or religion, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't dictate who we can love. 
But, but they can dictate what we're to believe? No. I'd rather believe the one who created us in God's image. His enemies, his enemies have raged against him, but he's unmoved. The God who is worshipped as the creator of all is about to pour out his judgment upon a world that refuses to honor him as the Lord God Almighty. I don't want to see anybody perish. Because the Lord doesn't want to see anybody perish, but he has got to judge. Because he is just. And he has extended that bow as far back as he can while he has extended his grace through Jesus Christ, his son. But at one moment in time, he'll let go of that bow. Hebrews 13 15 says, Therefore, By Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. As we move into chapter 5, The focus of attention shifts to a seven-sealed scroll that is in the hand of God. While the vision of chapter 4 was of of God the Creator, in chapter 5 it is Christ, the Redeemer. So now let's look at verses 1 through 4 of Revelation 5. And I'll read it to you and you can follow along in your Bibles. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. You know, as I said earlier, I, I mentioned that I wanted to, you know, complete these two chapters tonight. But I, you know, as I consider chapter five closely and actually more intensely, I found it to be invaluable in our study of the rest of the book of Revelation, which means if we don't get this one right, we don't get the rest of it right. We've got to get chapter 5 right. In other words, this chapter and its importance cannot be overemphasized. If we do not rightly divide it, we will be wrong the rest of the way because it contains the key to the right understanding of the rest of the Revelation. The scroll, in the right hand of him who sits on the throne is the official document which determines the great crisis and climax of all of human history. The scroll in the right hand of him who sits on the throne is the official document which determines the great crisis and climax of all of human history. But it is also Christ's deed or title deed to all that the Father promised him because of his sacrifice on the cross. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2, I should say. Psalm 2, and verses 7 and 8. We're familiar with this. Where Messiah says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. There is an inheritance to be given to Christ. 
And Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 make that clear. Where it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. Through whom also He made the worlds. He has appointed Christ to be heir of all things. You see, the nations of the world possess no document as significant as, and as accurate as this scroll. The scroll that is in the right hand of him who sits on the throne. No nation of this world possesses any document that comes even close to the significance and accuracy of this scroll. World leaders may have their plans and predictions, and most of the times it's really bad. Or most of the times they are really bad. But they all must come to nothing. They will come to naught. All of these plans and all of these predictions made by secular men. We're going to see a detailed description of the earth's future unfold before our eyes as we get into chapter 5. Let me refer to the closing part of Daniel's prophecy for just a moment. For it makes reference to this seven-sealed scroll. Uh, There were details concerning the end times that Daniel did not understand. We can understand that. At times, you know, there are things that we read that we don't understand when we just read it by itself. But when we actually read other parts of the scriptures and, and uh, you know, make a, a more conscientious study of, of all of the scriptures, then we begin to gain more of an understanding, especially if we're dealing with the end times uh, and so on. So, uh, Daniel had this particular confusion. And of course, then again, m- much of, of that was, was already sealed or, or, or at least held in a, in, a, in a way that wasn't revealed as of yet. But in Daniel 12, verses 8 and 9, which is the last chapter of Daniel, it says, Although I heard, he says, I did not understand. So there was this prophecy that was being given. And then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? In other words, what is going to happen here at the end of of all that you've been giving to me? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. So he's telling him, Well, you know, I'm I'm not going to tell you. But I'm going to wait to the end to reveal it. Now, he did reveal to him a lot of other things. He did do that. But here he says, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up. Since then, the scroll was closed up and sealed to be in the possession of him who gave the message contained in it. A similar scroll is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where it says, Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, And then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside. That's exactly what John said. That there was writing inside and outside of this scroll. And written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Now what does that tell you? Lamentations, mourning, and woe means there's judgment coming. So this fits perfectly with what we see here being uh, seen by John in the hand of he who sits on the throne, or of him who sits on the throne. So what is contained in the scroll will be revealed before us now as the seals are broken in succession and its message is disclosed as we get now into chapter 6. We're not there yet. Well, you read on if you want. I encourage it. And then write down questions that you may have and hopefully I'll answer them as we go through our study. But it is important to note that as John, as John saw writing on both sides of the scroll, as did Ezekiel, that would mean that nothing more could be added, because it was sealed, of course, nothing more could be added, and what was written was complete, and it was final. So there was nothing more to add to this scroll. Remember, God's has seen everything, God has seen everything from the beginning to the end and from the end to the beginning. The literal unveiling of God's purposes for the world as written by the Lord in the scroll will not take place until after the church has been taken up to be with her Lord. Can't emphasize this enough. The timing is very clear. 
And while we have spent a lot of time on chapter 4 and the worship and activities in heaven, which John is allowed to see and report on, and had hoped to have completed chapter 5, it must be said that there really is no need for a chapter break at this point, if only to preserve the continuity of divine revelation connected with this scene in heaven, which means we're still going to be in heaven in chapter 5. But as we close our study for this evening, let's consider what the 24 elders did before the throne of God. Let's consider that. They cast their crowns before the throne. They were wearing victor's crowns. The crown of a victor. One victorious, whether in battle or in some athletic event. They were wearing victor's crowns because they represent, the 24 elders represent the overcomers of this world. They represent the overcomers of this world before the throne of God. Remember that every overcomer is promised such a crown. The last place I want to take you in the scriptures tonight is 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 7 and 8. 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight, Paul says at the end of his life. Remember, this is Paul's last letter that we know of. But it is his last letter. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I love these words and I, and I want the church to, you know, to understand Paul's heart of what he dealt with in this world as he looked for the coming of Jesus Christ. Our life on, in, in, this, in this world is a fight. It is a fight every day. A fight to stay faithful. A fight to stay devoted. A fight to continue our duty for the Lord. Why? Because we deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil every day. World, flesh, and the devil. World, flesh, and devil. Devil, flesh, world. Flesh, devil, world. Flesh, world, devil. Whatever way we see it, we face it. And yet, you know what? We're victorious over it. Because Jesus says, in this world you may have tribulation, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So praise the Lord for that. But Paul, this, this is Paul's last will and testament in essence to his son Timothy. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I've crossed the finish line. Finally. And if I had been Paul, I'd have said, finally, 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 finally. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also, and please underline this in your Bibles, but also to all who have loved His appearing. I I find it interesting that Paul would would use a, a past tense here. Those who have loved his appearing. Because what he was stating is that all through our Christian walk, all through our Christian life, as we have issued forth worship and praise to the Lord, going through the struggles and trials that we've gone through, but worshiping him anyway and loving him anyway and passionately praising him with our voices, with our hearts, with our hands lifted up. By doing all of this, we are loving. We were loving his appearing, loving it every day, even though we we were just waiting for it. Remember the finality of his life here. He's saying, oh, listen, finally there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous just will give to me on that day. Not Not only to me, but also to all who have loved throughout the walk in Christ, who have loved his appearing, even though it hasn't happened yet. My, my, my question is, what are you waiting for? Start loving his appearing. Start looking up. 
because your redemption draws near. Those of you that were Christians back when I came to the Lord, maybe back in the early, early 70s, you know, that man, we were looking for Jesus. We'd look at cloud formation. We'd say, I think that's Jesus right there. He's coming, man. And there, was even, there was even a book that they, you know, they, somebody had published. Somebody had taken a picture. And back then there was no internet, you know. So somebody had taken a picture. Somehow this got around, but it finally ended up on the cover of a book, you know. And, and it was a cloud that looked kind of like Jesus, man. It was like, oh, you know. And everybody's like, oh, he's coming. He's here. You know? and that was back in the 70s. And, and, you know, he hasn't come yet. But that doesn't mean he won't. In fact, you can give thanks to him for that because between then, uh, the time of that picture of the cloud and and now, most of you came to Jesus. So be thankful that he is waiting for that last, last person that's going to say yes to Jesus. And then he comes. If he was merciful for us, there's still a lot more to be merciful for. Pray for them. Love them. Even if they spite you for loving Jesus, show them the love of Christ. And keep looking up. Because your redemption draws near. Jesus is risen and he's coming again. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much.